Well, please remain standing and let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We will be reading verses 18 through 25 this morning. Verses 18 through 25, we'll be reading that, and that will be the text that we'll be considering this morning. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, this is God's inspired, breathed out word to us. Let us rejoice as we hear it read, uh, and let us take these words to heart. Paul writing here says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon this word that we've read as it is preached. Now we ask, Lord, that you would bless and fill the weak vessel that brings your word. Would you use him for your glory to proclaim your word this morning? And for each of us as we hear, God, we pray that you would encourage us with these words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday after church, I was talking to some of, the, some of our youngest young people, and, and I noticed when I was talking to one of them that she had a, a book of dot-to-dots. Remember those, you older folks, doing the dot-to-dots? Uh, I know Cindy's kind of gotten into those because there are some really hard ones. You can buy books that have like hundreds of numbers and there's no help and, and it's interesting. You can look at them and have no idea what it is you're drawing until you're well into it. But we were talking about how fun those are and how challenging sometimes. And so this morning, we're going to begin by doing a little mental dot-to-dot exercise just to get us to where we want to, to start in our passage this morning here in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. But let me, to do that, let me remind you uh, that from the opening verse of chapter 5, remember we have been learning, and, and I hope you've been gaining encouragement from this and thanking God anew for, for the amazing and frankly, incredible benefits that are ours and every Christian's as a result of being justified by God. And you'll remember, because we've mentioned it several times between chapters 5 and here in chapter 8, that the first and arguably best uh, benefit is what we find right at the beginning of chapter 5, where he says in verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned that several times. There's no way to overestimate or to speak too often about what that means and just how great that is. That we who were, each and every one of us, at odds with God, we were haters of God, and God, through, because of His law and because of His justice, was against us. Because we were lawbreakers, we were rebellious. But because we have been justified, because of what Christ has done, and because of God's love, Paul says the great love with which He loved us, because of that, God has justified us. He has taken our sin and put it on His Son. He has taken His Son's righteousness and given it to us so that He is able to declare us righteous. Everything that that stood between us and God has been removed. All of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the condemnation has been removed so that we are now reconciled with God and we have peace with God. As a result of being declared right, we, we, we enjoy a different... Um, well, let me read this here to, to give you a little idea here because when we studied this idea of having peace with God, remember I said that, and I continue to say, that it is the most valuable benefit imaginable. And it's a valuable benefit, but it's not the only one. In fact, in the third verse of chapter 5, we read this. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As a result of our justification, people of God, Paul says we enjoy a different and a unique perspective on suffering. Unheard of in the, the world around us. Because Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. And we do that because we know that they are used by God to produce in us hope. So there's a connection in the Christian life, a direct connection between suffering and hope. Now then, fast forward or connect the dot then to chapter 8 to where we ended up last week in verses 16 and 17. Because there Paul says that we have been given the Holy Spirit who is called the the spirit of adoption, and because we are children through adoption, we are heirs of God. We are recipients of a grand inheritance right along with Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. But Paul says that sonship entails suffering. He says that we suffer with Him with Christ, as we are united with Christ. But that suffering, look at the end of verse 17, is in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So in chapter 5, there's a connection between suffering and hope. And in chapter 8 here, there's a connection between suffering and glory. And in this morning's passage, Paul then brings sort of the three together as he answers the question, well, it's not really a question, but an encouragement about how we should view suffering as Christians or how Paul viewed suffering. And he's giving it as an example for us. 
What is the hope that we have? Specifically, it is the hope of future glory. And we will see, but did you know that hope is held to by more than just Christians? We're not the only ones that have a hope. And we'll see that this morning as we look at three different things. First, we're going to look at a hopeless comparison. Then we will look at a hopeful creation. And finally, at the hopeful Christian. But we start with a hopeless comparison. Again, notice verse 17. Before we even get to where we're going to be this morning in verse 18, Paul says in in verse 17, he speaks there of the necessity of our suffering with him. He says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He speaks of the necessity of suffering so that we may be glorified with him. But in verse 18, then he comes and he says, For I consider that something. In light of this suffering, in light of the the necessity of it, all of of the suffering that we face, and in light of our promised inheritance, uh, that's the way Paul then is going to speak of this suffering. Now, I don't usually do this, but raise your hand for me if you enjoy suffering. No one? I didn't think so. Of course no one. No one enjoys suffering. That's why we call it suffering. Otherwise we'd call it, I don't know, fun or something like that. In fact, we typically do anything we can, we'll go to great lengths, won't we, to avoid suffering. But the problem comes in that we can't avoid suffering. We can't avoid all sufferings. The good news, though, Christian, is that the suffering that you face is actually a blessing. And it's actually a small price to pay for the blessings that are going to come later. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 18. Look at He says, therefore, I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time, let's stop there and, and gather together what he's talking about. What I mean, that's a pretty huge topic. That's a huge catalog of things because we suffer in various ways, in numerous instances of various ways. The type that most often comes to our mind uh, in connection with Christian life is persecution. That's a type of suffering. And the Bible is very clear that we do suffer that way. The Bible is very clear that Christians have always suffered that way. Remember over even in in that great chapter of faith, we have a section on sufferings in Hebrews chapter 11. He mentions some, some of those who had faith, some of those who lived by faith, he says, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. That's in order for the animals, the lions, to attack them. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
So Christians have suffered throughout time. Paul mentions his own sufferings and for, the, for the gospel in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27. Remember, he talks about how he was imprisoned so many times and he received beatings so many times and stonings left for dead. We also know that, that after the time of the apostles, that the church, the early church, underwent horrific persecutions against Christians. And throughout history, even to today, Christians suffer. They suffer physically. They suffer socially. They suffer financially. They suffer through loss of family, loss of employment. And these are the types of things, this persecution, that's probably foremost in our mind, and it's probably what's first and foremost in Paul's mind as he lists this. But Paul viewed his suffering in this way, remember actually, as a, he said in in Colossians 1, that he, in his persecution that was upon him, he was filling up the the persecution of Christ. That is, that, that now that Christ isn't here to suffer the direct persecution, now it falls upon his people. And that's true, and that's where this comes from. But that's not the only kind of suffering. There's other types of suffering, sufferings for this pre- of this present time. We can think of natural sufferings, sufferings as, as an effect of the fall that aren't directly tied to persecution. There's sickness, and there's hunger, and there's death. There are also tragedies that befall us sometimes. There are accidents and diseases, uh, pandemics, and murders, etc., All of these are all included in what Paul is referring to in verse 18. But they all have this in common, Paul says. He lumps them all together. All suffering of whatever type, from whatever source, Paul says, all have these, this in common. In verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of God that is to be revealed in us. There is a benefit of justification. Now, we've said no suffering is pleasant, but when you take the long view of suffering and you compare it to the the glory of the inheritance that Paul has talked about, the inheritance that is ours, ours because we belong to God, because we are heirs of God and we share in that inheritance of Christ himself, when you compare those things to our sufferings, suffering comes up on the short end. In fact, it's more than that. Paul says that our sufferings, look at the middle of verse 18 there, he says, are not worth comparing. See, it's not just that they come up short in a comparison but that even trying to compare our sufferings to what God has for us that we have yet to receive is a hopeless comparison, is a hopeless task. Take all of your sufferings, Paul's saying. All of yours, take all of mine, take all of the the sufferings of every believer throughout the ages. Put them on a scale, on one side of a scale. Then Paul invites us to put the glory of our inheritance, 
All of the promises of God, all that that is set aside that is kept in heaven for you, Christian, and put them on the other side. And immediately Paul is saying, the future glorious inheritance that you have is so, so weighty. That's actually what the word glorious means, is weighty. So it's so glorious that the sufferings, no matter how heavy they are, will immediately fly up into the air in insignificance. They're not even worthy to be compared. But they are, when we consider them in that way, they are shown to be what Paul calls them over in 2 Corinthians 4.17 where he said this, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. And this is not to to minimize the weight of our suffering, the depth of our suffering, the suffering of our suffering, But rather, it is here, and Paul writes this, to magnify the glory that is yours and yours and yours in Christ. It's to put it in perspective. Such is the glory of your inheritance, Christian, and it is already assured to you. You are already a possessor of it. We'll see down in the familiar words of verse 30 where Paul says that so certain is your receiving of this glory, your glorification, the receiving of your inheritance, that he counts it as an already accomplished fact. Right? Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You say, well, wait, I haven't been glorified yet. I haven't received all of that that God has for me on that day yet. Paul says, no, but it is just as sure as if you had. You are as sure to receive it as you are to have been predestined by God before the foundation of the world. That's why we call that verse the golden chain of salvation. It's all together. You are already considered glorified, though it has not happened yet. An inheritance, a glorification, as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of any man has been able to imagine. And it is then a hopeless task to even try to compare our sufferings to the glorious blessings of the new heaven and the new earth. Which, as the name implies, includes an improved version of the old heaven and the old earth. And that consideration then leads Paul to speak of the fact of the hope of someone other than us or something other than us. And that's our second point. It is that of a hopeful creation. This is going to cover verses 19 through 22. And in verse 19, Paul makes a statement and then explains it in the subsequent verses as we've seen him do before. Look at verse 19 with me. For the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the statement that then he's going to explain in verses 20 through 22. The first thing that we need to be clear on is what Paul is saying here and what he's not saying. When Paul presents the creation as waiting, as longing, and in verse 22, as groaning, he's using a literary device. He's using the literary device of personification, which is to represent a thing or an idea as a person in order to convey a meaning. He's not... He's not suggesting a sort of sentient creation that actually waits and that actually has feelings and that actually groans. There's actually a view that says that. A thing called panpsychism says that there's some sort of a a consciousness field that goes throughout the universe and that the stars are thinking and considering just like we do, that we are a reflection of them. Eh, not right. And that's not what Paul is saying. He is using this idea of personification. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, you know that we, they, they do the same thing where they will uh, present uh, in what's called anthropomorphism. Uh, they will a- a- attach to the creation or even to God something that we understand. Talking about God's right arm. God doesn't have a right arm or a left arm. God is spirit, remember. But it helps us to understand that it is his power working, that he works, that he moves, that he does things. And here, Paul is using this to describe the creation for us. In a sense, he's saying in its current state, creation is awaiting some event, some state of affairs that will bring to it some resolution for something. And he presents it here as waiting with eager longing. He gives the sense that something is really out of place and needs to be set right. And what the creation is eagerly waiting, what it is eagerly longing for, is right there at the end of the verse, it is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? Who are the sons of God? Well, back in verse 14, Paul says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that if you do not have the Spirit of God, you do not belong to Christ. So everyone who belongs to Christ is a son of God. The whole idea of adoption is what brings us into the state of being sons of God. We are sons of God. You are the sons of God. And the revealing, verse 19 there, the revealing of the sons of God, revealing us as clearly the sons of God and daughters of God. Don't leave you women out, especially on Mother's Day. The sons of God, uh, that is all refers to the time when God's people, who though we're different in many ways than the rest of the world, we still more or less sort of blend into the world. That is that we're not seen immediately. You see a group of people walking down the street. You're not really able to tell who are Christians and who are not. But there is a time coming when God will both reveal us 
to be who we really are in distinction from the world, and he will more fully reveal himself in us. And that will happen when he returns from heaven and separates the sheep from the goats. Then it will be abundantly clear who is who. When those who are his will be told, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When our souls are perfected and our bodies are raised incorruptible, made like the body of our Lord. For when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is, 1 John 3, 2 says. That is the revelation of the sons of God, the revealing of the sons of God. And that is what the creation is on the edge of its seat, as it were, waiting for. Now, in verses 20 and 21, then, we, we get sort of the backstory to all of this. Verses 20 and 21, one sentence in the original. Listen to what he says. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're going to look at those three or those two verses with three subpoints here. We're going to look at the subjected, subject, sorry, the subjection, the groaning, and the hope, because that's what Paul talks about here, as he talks about how the creation is waiting and what that's all about. First, there's the subjection. It's in verse 20. He says, "For the creation was subjected to futility." And this, of course, is a direct consequence of the fall. It's one of the effects of the curse placed on the creation. In Genesis 3.1, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis 3, God is, remember, after the fall of man, God is pronouncing the curse. He's pronounced the curse upon the woman. He's He's pronounced the curse on the serpent. And in verse 17... He pronounces the curse on the man. But as he does that, he says this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And then a little bit Further back in Romans chapter 8 in verse 21, he talks about the bondage to corruption that the creation is now under. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the creation. The creation is cursed now. And the word futility that's here back in, in Romans 8 is another word, another way it can be translated is emptiness. And it refers to the, the frustration, again using this personification, the frustration of the creation to do what it was meant to do. Now to a certain degree it can do that. Paul says that the creation reveals God to man, but there's something that's still held back. The psalmist says that that the creation declares the glory of God, that it proclaims His handiwork, that it pours out speech, that it reveals knowledge. But still there's something 
less going on than what it was meant to do and what it is hoping for the time when it will be able to do. The word futility, again, is the same word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes so often translated as vanity, emptiness. And Paul says, this was not the creation's idea to have this happen to it. The creation, Paul says, was subjected to this curse. And Paul says they're not willingly, but because of him who suggested it. Now there are several suggestions as to who this is that subjected it, but it's very clear that it can only be God. God is the one who subjected the the creation to this curse. God is the one who cursed it. It was because of Adam, but it was God who did the subjecting. The effect on the creation is part of the judgment that comes upon man, as we read in Genesis 3. That judgment came from God. And as a result, look down in verse 22. Paul says that creation, this is the second thing we see here, creation groans. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah speaks twice of the creation mourning because of the evil of those who dwell in it. And this is a similar idea, but Paul speaks of of something with a focus going forward. A future focus. That idea is expressed in the metaphor here of a woman in labor. That the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, this idea of personification here. Speaking of creation as if it were human. The the same creation that the psalmists say claps its hands and cries out in praise. Also, and at the same time, Paul says, groans like a woman giving birth. And the picture there is pain. Great pain, from what I'm led to understand. But in anticipation of something wonderful. That is what is going on in the creation even now. Pain, but in anticipation of something wonderful to come. And that anticipation is expressed back in verse 20. And especially in verse 21. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then the sentence crosses the verse boundary there. He says, Who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In hope, it was subjected. Even, Paul says, when God subjected the creation to the curse, He did so in hope. God didn't write off His creation after the fall. Just as he did not write it off after the flood. Just as he did not write off the pinnacle of his creation, man, after either of those events. 
But Paul says that he subjected the creation to frustration of futility in hope that the whole creation uh, would, would rejoice at the end, that it would be set free from its bondage. Now, it's very important as we think of that, we think of God doing something in hope of something, we have to remember the biblical definition of the word hope. It's not a, a bare wish. It's not, Paul's not saying that God did this wishing that something would happen, hoping that, that some turn of events will take place. But remember that in the case of the Scripture, the, the word hope has to do with a confident expectation that something will be the case. It is to anticipate something that you do not yet have in reality but are assured that you will have or that will take place. And when God, as He, as he does so here... When he does something with a confident expectation, you can pretty much rest assured that what exists in hope will exist in reality. In fact, there is no other way that it could be otherwise. And the hope here, that when God cursed the creation, the hope that was present there, the hope that shines through the futility of the creation, the weakness of the creation, is that someday the creation, Paul says, will be set free, will be redeemed, not morally, but specifically here, he says, from its bondage to corruption. That is, it too looks forward to freedom from that bondage. By the way, the fact that it looks forward to freedom from that bondage, notice that it doesn't say that it looks forward to annihilation and replacement, but to being set free from the bondage to corruption. Just as we in our resurrected bodies will be free from our bondage to corruption, so the creation will enjoy the same thing. And, as, and, and so Paul expresses it as obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The pristine creation, subjected because of man, by God, in judgment, subjected to corruption and futility through the fall, is bound for a glorious destiny of fully realizing its own reason for being created to fully and eternally give unfettered expression to the glory of the one who created it and all things. Much as we do. And as Paul expresses that truth in verse 21, he shows that the creation's glorification is, is inextricably bound to ours. And so, as the creation groans, anticipating that day, Paul says in verse 23, and not only the creation... But we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so that now, finally, we look at a hopeful or the hopeful Christian. The creation groans, but it's not doing a solo. In fact, we'll see next week that there is a trio 
of groanings. But in these verses here this morning, we see two things groaning. The creation groans, and Paul says, we groan. We groan inwardly, he says. We mourn the current state of things, especially within ourselves. And we look forward to our own, and certainly the broader creations, but especially our own redemption. We look forward to the actual bestowal of that inheritance that Paul spoke of earlier. An inheritance, listen to this, an inheritance that we, you, Christian, have even greater assurance of than the creation does of its. Because we have been given something different. We have been given something special. We have been given something to assure us all the more of our future inheritance and our future glory. We have been given a down payment on that inheritance. Even while we're still here, even while we still groan, even while we still undergo the sufferings of this present time, it's given to us when we're brought to God. In fact, it's the way in which we're brought to God. And it's not just another gift, it's not just a gift as glorious as every gift from God is. But this gift is not just a gift, it is the giver of all gifts. In fact, it's not an it at all. It's a he. And he is God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of life that Paul has talked about. He is given to us, and he is given to every Christian as what Paul refers to here in verse 23 as the first fruits of the Spirit. The idea of, of first fruits goes back to the Old Testament, to the fact that God had commanded that the, the Israelites, his people, were to bring to him uh, in, in offering and in thankfulness, not the leftovers. Not the, the gleanings, not what was left on the ground, but, but they were to bring, and not, and, and not the, the animals that were sick and, and not worth anything else. They were to bring to God and offer to God the first fruits, the best, the first. And the, as the first fruits, they were the anticipation of the rest, the rest of the, the flock, the rest of the crop. That's what was given to God. And that's sort of the background to what is said here as we are given the first fruit of the Spirit. And we need to keep that in mind because Paul is not saying that when we are given the first fruits of the Spirit, that we are given sort of the, the anticipation of the Spirit, that we're given a part of the Spirit. And then we'll get the rest later. That's not what he's saying. That's not the way it works. When you are given the Holy Spirit at your conversion, you are given the whole Holy Spirit. What this means is that in giving you the Holy Spirit, God has given you the first fruits of your inheritance. That's why we get this idea of, of an earnest, 
You know what earnest money is. It's, we get this idea of a down payment. It's here is this, and this is a promise, this is an assurance that the rest will be coming. And that's what the Holy Spirit is to us when he is spoken of here as the first fruits. The Spirit is the first fruit of the inheritance that you have. He has given you the Spirit as a down payment on the full inheritance that is for right now being kept in heaven for you. That inheritance that Peter says is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And and this idea of the Spirit of God given to you, Christian, given to me, as a down payment, as an earnest, as first fruits, is what makes all of our suffering not worth comparing with what we have waiting for us. Again, what eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. If the down payment is so great, what will the inheritance be like? But this inheritance, it certainly includes... Look at the end of the verse there. As part of our adoption as sons, into verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. That's what we have to look forward to. Oh, there's a lot more, but specifically here, this idea of redemption of bodies, the bodies that are corrupt, the bodies that are fallen, the bodies that are, have been subject to the curse are going to be freed from that, just like the creation who has been subject to judgment, subject to corruption, will be freed from that. There's that connection. Listen to Paul elaborate on this most wonderful truth in his letter to the Corinthian believers. He says, referring to our bodies, he says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... And you got and you got to get the idea here. If this the tent, temporary dwelling, um, the idea of of flimsiness almost. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. For in this tent, what does he say? He says we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not, or, you know, being looking forward. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he ends by saying, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee of our new glorified bodies in the resurrection. And so Paul says here, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for that day. And so we pray in anticipation, Lord, your kingdom come. We pray, Lord, come quickly. And Paul reminds us then in verses 24 and 25 and we really just have to mention this briefly here. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Although we don't yet see these things, we continue to hope for them. We continue with a confident expectation of them. In fact, because we do not see these things, we hope for them, Paul says. We wait in hope. We were saved, he says, in this hope. We were saved in this, and to this hope, this expectation of the redemption of our bodies, full and complete. In fact, as I say, we hope because we do not yet see. And that's what Paul explains in verses 24 and 25. He says, if you had it already, you wouldn't be hoping for it. Because who hopes for something they already have? If I buy a house, or better, if I'm gifted a house, and I get the keys, and I get the deed, I don't keep saying, boy, I hope I get that house. It's ridiculous. And it's insulting to the one who gave the house. And for us, who have been given the the down payment of the Spirit, we hope for what we have, but we do not yet possess. We will see it. That is our hope. The hope given to us by God and secured by His having given to us the Holy Spirit. Beloved people of God this morning, let us consider then that our sufferings, considered in that understanding, these verses, that our sufferings are not worth even comparing with what we have waiting for us. And when we think of the sufferings of Christians, when we think of maybe our own sufferings and how bad they are, the severity of those things, how great will heaven be? How great will our inheritance be? And so let us, as Paul concludes here, wait for it with patience. Patience but longing Patience, but groaning. Patience, but anticipating as we look forward to what God has for us. Let's pray. Our God, you are such a a generous God that you have prepared for us something that, that our minds cannot even cannot even land on, cannot even encompass. Certainly more than we've seen, certainly more than we've heard. And we know that when that day comes, that not only will we be redeemed in our bodies, but that this creation will be redeemed. That this creation will be brought out from under the corruption, out from under the, the weakness And it will be brought into that state where it will endure forever. Even as that place, the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem where we will dwell with you forever. Help us to be patient as we wait. And help us to look to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.